0: Hi. We hope you've been enjoying the show. It's been a pleasure bringing you these conversations about books we love. Digging into the science of sound, the history of water, hotel heists, and secret space stations. Sometimes we get asked what the best way is to support new shows like this one. It's really easy and would mean so much to us. Just take a minute and go to npr.org donate to give to your local NPR station. And thanks. Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Today, we're going to hear about two books, both finalists for this year's National Book Award for Fiction. They're both novels, yes, but they're both rooted in very real and, at times, very brutal histories. In a bit, author Laird Hunt talks about his book, Zori, about a woman who lives through the Great Depression and then World War II. There's a stretch where she works in a factory, painting the faces of clocks and watches using radium a radioactive substance that finds its way into her body. But first, Robert Jones Jr.'s book, The Prophets, is about enslaved Black queer people in America. And as you'll hear him tell NPR Scott Simon, he put in a ton of legwork researching the roots, not just of Black queerness, but also of homophobia.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
2: His debut novel came to him in whispers from people whose stories haven't been told and whose history has often been wiped from the record. Black queer people who were enslaved in America. It is a love story set inside a tragedy. Samuel and Isaiah, two black men enslaved on a plantation in Mississippi, who find love with each other. Robert Jones Jr., a born New Yorker who has written for Essence and the New York Times, joins us
3: now from New York.
2: Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Simon.
2: Can you tell us about these these voices you heard, the whispers that you
4: heard?
3: You know, a psychologist might say that's your own conscience speaking to you, but I wanted to be a little bit more spiritual in my thinking about it and imagine that it was my ancestor's, sort of pushing me toward writing this story, toward being a witness to their testimonies that have not made it into the official record.
2: Yeah. Well, help us understand what went into this. It is an extraordinarily vivid novel written with heart and imagination, yet there's also an awful lot of scholarship and investigation in here, isn't there?
3: Yes. um, How it all began was as an undergrad, I took Africana studies as a minor. I was a creative writing major. And in reading all of those wonderful texts by Harriet Jacobs and Frederick Douglass and so on, it struck me as a little odd that it's not until we get to the Harlem Renaissance that the idea of a black queer person emerges with the works of Wallace Thurman and then later on James Baldwin. So there was sort of a question um, for me is, well, where are they? Where were they during antebellum slavery, for example?
2: The story is mostly set in Mississippi, but it ranges widely really around the world. Why was it important to you to set scenes in Africa?
3: There is this notion in many black communities that queerness or homosexuality or whatever term you wish to use is the result of some sort of colonial trauma. And that it wasn't until European interference through war, through religion and such, that black people engaged in this thing we call queerness but that is patently false. What my research showed was, in fact, that what Europe brought with them to Africa was homophobia through um, the violence and the religion. In many of the communities that lived in pre-colonial Africa, queerness was just as normal as heterosexuality. It was just a part of the landscape and there was no need to single it out or call it by a different name. It was love, it was sex, and that was just that.
2: Samuel and Isaiah are able to, to kind of create their own, their own landscape, their own territory in the barn. What are they able to make there?
3: A safe space, a place of peace, um, of longing fulfilled— Because it it functions as a place where they labor. Um, So it is safe because if they're in there working, taking care of the animals and such, then no one has to worry about what else they're doing. But in their own autonomy, they're able to take back some of their humanity by showing each other the gentlest and kindest versions of love. That is almost a holy place for them.
2: Yeah. I have read that you grew up in a household that on your mother's side was Nation of Islam, on your father's Southern Baptist. Well, there's a mixed marriage for you. How did, <laughs> how, how did that work out?
3: Well, the, the fabulous thing about it is that my mother, Joan, is one of the freest people that I know. She outright rejected both. You know, I realized that I was queer at a, quite a young age. I was about four And because my mother had already taken the bumps and the bruises from the family for her claiming her own autonomy, I had a path that I could walk down to reject both of those things and claim my own.
2: I bet seeing all that sharpened your gifts as a writer in many ways, sharpened your
3: powers of observation and empathy and identification. That may be true. Um, That along with the fact that um, I always loved reading. My dad gave me my first comic book at the age of four, and that was it. It was a Wonder Woman comic book, and I am the hugest Wonder Woman fan in the world. (laughs) Um, And her character in particular was one that um, was about love and peace and um, humanity. and, And maybe some of that rubbed off on me because I would then rewrite the stories and put myself in them as Wonder Woman's sidekick. And so I, that's where my love of reading and writing kind of emerged. The prophets really dazzles,
2: but you come back to the realization that, um, like any great force of nature, love
3: finds a way. It's really important that in the midst of sorrow, the greatest art... Is conceived, I think about the enslaved people on the plantation who were forced to pick cotton or chop cane or pull indigo or whatever it was, and the melodies and the harmonies they created out of that pain, which to outsiders it looked like, oh look, they're having a great time, and it 's no they're they're giving their sorrow a voice because otherwise that machete that they're using to chop that cane may come across. Your throat. They're doing this to prevent themselves from degrading themselves like you have degraded yourself by putting them in this position. So it was very important for the core of this book to be hope and love.
2: Robert Jones Jr., his highly acclaimed debut novel, The
3: Prophets. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a joy.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea, and their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.
0: You ever hear someone tell their life story? It could be anybody, family or a stranger or whatever, and think, phew, that's a lot of life to live. That's how I felt listening to this interview between Scott Simon and author Laird Hunt. His book, Zori, follows the life of just one woman, but it's quite a lot of life.
2: Laird Hunt's Zori is about the kind of life we may not often read in novels. Zori is elderly. She's begun to tire after a life of hard work in Indiana and Illinois during the Depression and then World War II, and finds a postcard of Chicago in her mailbox and thinks, She'd like to see it someday. She's lost her parents to diphtheria at an early age, and then not much later, the aunt who stepped in to raise her. She goes to work, she gets married, she absorbs more loss and loneliness, and keeps going. The National Book Award finalist of a novel packs a whole absorbing human life into just 161 pages that are polished like jewels. Laird Hunt teaches at Brown University and joins us now from Paris. Mr. Hunt, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. You grew up, I gather, all over Singapore, San Francisco, London, but ultimately a farm in Indiana. Did you ever see Zori there, close up or at a distance?
4: I sort of feel like Zori was all over that rural Indiana landscape. Um, When I was living there in the the 1980s at my grandmother's farm, just the two of us on this, this central Indiana farm, The landscape really was dominated, um, made exciting by these older women um, in the community Um, Mm. older farm women, um, retired teachers, fierce, smart, decent people. Um, That's how I experienced that world and that landscape.
2: Yeah. I want to give people an idea of your extremely rich narrative. Let's just begin at the beginning of the book and something as simple as a hoe in the ground and, uh, and what it sets off in Zori.
4: Zori Underwood had been known throughout the county as a hard worker for more than 50 years. So it troubled her when finally the hoe started slipping from her hands, the paring knife from her fingers, the breath in shallow bursts from her lungs, and smack dab in the middle of the day, she had to lie down. At first she carried out this previously unthinkable obligation on the worn leather of the daybed in the front room with her jaw set, hands pressed tight against her sides, staring up at the end of a long crack that ran the length of the ceiling, or at the flecks of blue light thrown onto the legs of the dining room table by the stained glass jay that hung in the south window. When after several minutes of this she felt her breath slowing and the blood flowing back out through her veins, she would ease herself up, shake her head, and resume whatever activity. Had been interrupted. Tell us about
2: the time she spends in the uh, in the clock factory. She she finds a real sense of of oneness with with friends uh, Janie and Marie, painting radium numbers on clocks, which just would not happen these days. Let's put it that way.
4: No, and and thank goodness, right? Um, although when when Zori um, takes on this work, uh, she's at at loose ends. Let's say during the Depression and finds a job uh, painting um, the the faces of clocks, uh, watches and clocks, using radium powder that was meant to be this miracle substance. Uh, And as a matter of fact, um, the young women, and it was almost exclusively young women who worked in the factory, were instructed to point the brushes with their mouths with this radioactive substance. So there's this undercurrent in that part of the novel of the difficulty to come because of this. Uh, And yet, at that moment, at that very moment, Zori finds extraordinary friendship with two other young women. Why does she get called Ghost Girl? You know, that was um, the, the name that... Was, was used in the 1920s and 30s. And this I gleaned from the wonderful books written by Claudia Clark, Radium Girls, and Kate Moore's The Radium Girls. Ghost girls, uh, because they literally glowed in the dark after long shifts at the factory, they had radium powder all over them, yeah. and they would walk out into the streets, um, and when it was just dark enough, they would light up.
2: She falls in love. She has a marriage. He goes off to war. He doesn't come back. We sometimes forget how many stories like that there are, don't we?
4: So many stories. So many stories. And they were all around me when I was a, a teenager, 13 years old, when I went to live with my, my grandmother on the farm. And there were all these echoes of that earlier experience, whether it was World War One, whether it was World War Two. that sense of, of loss and of carrying on that really marked me early on. Why does... Um why
2: does Zori sometimes have a dread of dreams?
4: Mm. Zori, um, because of the tumultuous nature of her early days, because of her status as, as an orphan, has, I think, a pretty reasonable um, interest in feeling in control of, of her life. And, uh, you know, when we're dreaming, all bets are off. She's the kind of person who dreams when she's awake, right? She dreams about different things. She she thinks about dif- different things, but she controls that. When she sleeps, she doesn't have that control, and, and that scares her. Do you think we pass
2: people every day who might be as compelling as Zori, who's at the center of this novel?
4: I've been convinced of that since I s- started writing. I mean, it has always seemed to me that no matter where you are, walking down the street, you see someone... And there's this extraordinary life walking by you. We know nothing about it. It may not be a loud life, maybe not a trumpet life, but it's a rich life. You can bet on that.
2: Laird Hunt, his National Book Award-nominated novel, Zori, thank you so much for being with us. It's been such a pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Petra Mayer is our founding editor. The show Elements this week were produced and edited by Courtney Dorning, Elena Burnett, T. Parvaz, Hafsa Fatima, Ravenna Koenig, Samantha Balaban, Hadil Al-Salchi, Michael Radcliffe, Jan Stewart and Martha Ann Overland. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening, and remember, visit donate.npr.org to support your local NPR station today.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.
1: This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your
4: podcasts.